We hope you're blessed and encouraged by the following study from Calvary Chapel, Elmani. It's our simple prayer that you would grow stronger and deeper in an intimate and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Should you have any questions, please feel free to contact us here at Calvary Chapel, Elmani. Qualifications for deacons in verses 8 through 13. And then we look at the stimulation uh, for the letter why Paul wrote it and it's going to be so amazing as we go through our study today you know I'm sure you guys are aware of the fact that everything rises or falls with leadership right whether it's a family or a flock leadership is part of our spiritual organization in the church and so we need to be organized or we'll die and so as we go through our study today we're going to see that Paul we saw in verses 1 through 7 describes the pastors uh, elders, deacons, in verses 8 through 13. And then we're going to see the church itself in verses 14 through 16. And as we understand this, we're going to better understand what it is to be a leader. But not only that, I think for all of us here uh, to be a servant and really to be a Christian. Because in all reality, you know, the one that you follow will really in, in many ways form who you are. And that's why it's important that we follow Christ and that we ask God, we pray, Lord, make us to be godly leaders. Because look what you read here in verse 8. It says, Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. We study today the deacons. You know, when you study the Bible in the New Testament, we don't have too many offices mentioned for the congregation. We do read of pastors, also referred to as elders or bishops or overseers in the Bible. And then we need read now of deacons. And so not a lot of uh, categories, offices. As a matter of fact, if you would mark right here and go over to Philippians chapter 1, I want to show you this verse in Philippians chapter 1, notice what it says in the very first verse. As Paul's writing the letter, he says in verse 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. And so as Paul's writing the letter, you know, there's not a lot of categories. There's not a lot of offices. He's talking to the saints, and he speaks to the bishops, and then he speaks to the deacons. And so this is really the makeup of the church. Back in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we see that this is the calling that we're going to speak of today. Now, the word deacon, it, it comes from a Greek word diakonos, and it speaks of someone who executes the commands of another, a servant, a minister. In, in the Greek culture, it literally historically referred to a waiter, someone who served uh, bread and water. But in the Christian context, it speaks of a servant one who by virtue of the office assigned to him 
by the church, cares for the poor, has charge of distribution of money and collected in their use, and one who assists the pastors. And we're going to see as we go through our study today, it's formally recognized by the church with both a title and a task. Now, the thing that I've mentioned to you many times as we've gone through things like this in the church here at Calvary Chapel Almani is that we're not really like, you know, looking for titles. We wouldn't expect you to call us Pastor Manny, Pastor Joey, Pastor Richard, or Pastor Henry. We don't, we don't ask that. You can call us just by our name, but we do know our responsibility. We do know we have a title because with that title comes a task. It's a calling. It's a commission from the King of Kings, from Jesus Christ himself. And so we have to know who bears the title, who he calls, who he anoints, and whom he appoints. It's true for pastors and it's also true for deacons. And we're going to see that when you really study the Bible, it's very important. And I remember one time I spoke to a dear brother who has a, a, an awesome servant's heart. And I was telling him that he was kind of doing the work of a deacon. And I was kind of wanting to recognize him as such, acknowledge him as such. And he told me, he said, you know what, I like the task, but I don't want the title. And I'll be honest with you, I completely understand that, you know, you don't want the title. But here's the thing. There's something about acknowledging the fact that you've been chosen by God with a responsibility to him within a congregation that awakens a man to that commission in his life. And just as a man is awakened to the call of being a pastor, elder, bishop, a man must also be awakened to the call if he is called to be an individual who goes beyond being a saint or beyond life as a layman. Certain men are called by God to be deacons in the church. And if you're a deacon, maybe, you know, like I shared when we were talking about pastors, man, I pray God raises up pastors, men who would do the work of God a shepherd's work and a shepherd's work can never be done without a shepherd's heart. And God blesses men. God blesses the church with godly pastors. And if that's you, man, I pray you would follow God. And the same is true for deacons. If this is something that God's calling you to, then I pray you would follow him because it's his calling on your life as a Christian. It's his anointing and his appointing within the church. And so if that's something for you, then, hey, let's look at the qualifications. But I think not only that, it's for all of us. We're all going to benefit from this because even as a church, we got to know what the standards are for leadership. You know, I mean, I mean, the world has their standards, right? You know, you have to have a college education or maybe a, a doctorate. You have to have a type A personality, you know, to be a leader or maybe even six foot four, tall, dark and handsome. I don't know. They have their different qualifications, none of which I have, by the way. But God has his. And that's why it's important for us to read and to learn. And we see, first of all, verse eight has more of the summary of, of being a man of self-mastery. Again, look at verse eight. Deacons must be reverent, not double tongued. Given to not given to much wine and not greedy for money. The word reverent is that Greek word semnos, and it means to be a man of character, an honorable man. The Greek word is found only four times in the Bible and is translated noble in Philippians chapter four, verse eight. So he's got to be like a, a noble man. We'll see again later in verse eleven, so should his wife. And then in Titus chapter two, verse two, it's an expectation of older men. And so 
the deacon has to have this element of being a, a man of reverence, a man of honor, a man of character, a man of integrity. And then, you know, we see kind of the manifestation of that in verse 2 again, that he's not to be double-tongued. Uh, most of you are familiar with that word logos. Well, this is dilogos. It's two-tongued. It's a man who's double in speech, saying one thing with one person, but saying something completely contrary to another. They say one thing to you in front of you in your face at church, but they see something totally different at home. Such a person should not be a deacon and definitely not a pastor. It's not the way Christians should live their life. If you got something to say, say it to the person that you're talking about. See, not double-tongued. It's very important. How many of you heard of that book, uh, Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan? A lot of you probably have read it. If you haven't, man, I encourage you to read it. Uh, Warren Wiersbe has a modern version, really, really good. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, is that called an allegory? An allegory of the Christian life. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. But in it, he has a section in Pilgrim's Progress, and he mentions these guys with double tongues. He mentions Mr. Smooth Man, or Mr. Facing Both Ways, or Mr. Anything, or he calls the parson of the parish Mr. Two Tongues. And as you go to that chapter, it's amazing the way he articulates it and he explains it. And, you know, we have to guard our hearts, you guys. Again, it's a qualification for, for deacons, but I think it's an expectation for Christians that we can't, we can't be speaking out of both sides of our mouth, right? That's what he's saying. You know, when you're having this whole self-mastery, you want to be a deacon, okay, you need to be a man of integrity, not double-tongued. And then he says right here again in verse 8, not given to much wine. Now, uh, you got to be careful when you read that, because someone might read that and they say, hey, uh, not much wine. How about a little, you know, a little wine, right? And you guys, shame on you for even thinking that. You know, I and I got to talk about it. I think we need to be careful, because in reading this, someone might go out and be tempted to have a glass of wine for dinner, when in all reality, they shouldn't go away with that. That's not the intention of the passage whatsoever. It's imperative to remember that the cultural context is such a contrast to today's country in America, that the wine back then was safer to drink than the water, and it was weak. It was way weak in comparison to today's wine. You know, when you read the Bible, Ephesians 5.18 commands us, it's an imperative in the Greek, that we should not be filled with wine in which is dissipation, in which is a wasted life, but we should rather be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. You know, when I used to get drunk before I was a Christian, I did things that I regret, things that I didn't even know that I did. I don't need that to give me joy or happiness or, you know, to change me into the person that I need to be. I need the Holy Spirit to change me into the person that I need to be. Proverbs chapter 20 verse 1 tells us that wine is a mocker. And Proverbs 31 verse 4 says it's not for kings, old emule. It's not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink. And so if there are any here today and maybe you're struggling with alcohol, well, you need to talk to somebody. You need to make yourself accountable. But whatever you do, don't justify that. Because, you know, you might read it and you might think, well, Jesus, you know, made, you know, wine from water and you know hey i read a passage like this and it says that we're not to be given to too much wine but here's the thing you're comparing apples and oranges you're comparing grape juice to wine 
You need to go back to the culture and find out what it really was. I mean, what would happen if you saw me or a deacon or maybe your dad drinking? And then you're going to think it's okay. And then I think, you know what? Hey, here you are. You say, I'll do the same. Next thing you know, you're an alcoholic. You can trace it back to that person, that so-called leader who made you stumble, who led you the wrong way. No, not in America today. I believe you would have to be a fool to think it's okay to drink and be a Christian. Alcohol in America is at least eight times stronger than it was back then. And so be so careful, you guys, that you don't justify these things. You know in your heart and the Holy Spirit, if he lives inside you, I know he tells you it's wrong. And so that's not, you know, oh, this is a license to drink. It's an exhortation not to. Not given to much wine. And then secondly, they're not greedy for money. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money. The phrase comes from two words, and it literally means uh, filthy gain. And yet we know it's a problem in the church today, and I guess it always has been. If you go over to 1 Timothy 6, chapter 6, you got to read this over and over again. In verse 6, it says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. And I don't know if I should tell you this, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you. I didn't tell first service, and I won't tell third. I'm just going to tell you guys this. <laughs> the other day, we were driving down our street, and we saw an estate sale. And uh, so they said they're going to have their estate sale Friday at 9 o'clock. And so, you know, the next day, you know, I'm, I'm on my way over here. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, I got to go to that estate sale, you know, because I don't know. You're thinking you might get a good deal or something that, you know, you're interested in or whatever. You know, but the bottom line is, is I already have enough stuff, huh? A lot of us have, why am I going to an estate sale, man? Next thing you know, I think, hey, I should get that piano for Aaron or whatever, things like that, you know. You just tempt yourself, Right. But but again, the, but the main point I want to bring at this point is that the, the, they died. And it's all there. They couldn't take it with them. You guys, have you learned that lesson by now? Man, I want to encourage you to travel light because a lot of times money can be a distraction and the things that money can buy. Sometimes all those things, you want it so bad, you want it so bad. And then, you know, I don't know about you, but there have been times where I want things so bad and I know in my heart that I'm grieving the Holy Spirit while I'm buying it. Have you guys ever done that? And I just like, Lord, I'm so sorry afterwards. And then afterwards, you're like, you know, what a waste of money and how oftentimes those possessions possess you, right? God had a calling on your life, but you're so buried in your stuff. That's what he's saying right here. He says in verse 9, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and to many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from their faith in their greediness. Think about that. I know, what does that mean, strayed from their faith? What does that mean to you? You know what, to me it means that they, it took them away from Jesus. You know, it puts a person on the shelf, someone that God wanted to use, but they wanted more money. How many times you see people, they, they, that's, what, that's the God they serve. Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. You can't serve God and mammon. You can't. 
It says it pierced himself through with many sorrows. He says, but you, if you're a man of God, then you flee these things. See, if you're going to be a deacon, which oftentimes leads to uh, being a pastor, but it doesn't always, but he's just saying these are things you've got to settle in your heart. You've got to be a man of character and integrity, a man of reverence. You've got to be a man who's not a double-tongued man. You've got to be a man who's not given to wine. You don't look for artificial substances to make you the person that you need to be, and you're not greedy for money. But how many times do we see it in the church today And, you know, we should not support these guys asking for money. We should not support these churches asking for money. You can go to the one down the street, you know, and you watch people on TV. That's bad enough. You're like, that's worse. I mean, I don't need to know that that guy in the $3,000 suit, you know, I don't give to him. But you go to the church down the street, and they ask for money. I was talking to someone the other day, church not too far from here, and they were saying that for 15, 20 minutes, that's what they were saying, manipulating the people to give money. You don't need to do that. We as a church should not tolerate that. When people start asking for money for whatever reason, you know what, my encouragement to you is to leave that church. And if we ever do that, you leave this church. Where God guides, God provides. But sometimes these guys want to get rich, Right? And we see it destroy many people. It destroyed Balaam. Balaam in the book of Numbers was a man who was so gifted by God. And I don't know, he's kind of a mysterious guy. But I tell you what, his prophecies came to pass. And, you know, at first he's kind of doing the right thing. He's not cursing the children of Israel. He's saying, I can't say anything except for what the Lord puts in my mouth. And he does really good. But eventually it just kind of wore him down. And eventually what ended up happening is he became a prophet for profit. Right? And he went against God because he wanted money. You know, there's that guy Gehazi. He was a right-hand man to Elisha. Elisha was a man who did twice as many miracles as Elijah. Elisha was a man that was influential up there, even used by God in the government. And so Gehazi was his right-hand man. And he would, you know, I would imagine have potential even to go beyond what Elisha did. But what happened? He got greedy. And one day when the Syrian came and he got healed through leprosy, the Syrian said to Elisha, hey, let me pay you for this. And Elisha said, no, I don't want any of your money. I don't need it, right? But Gehazi is right there and he's thinking, dude, what are you, let's take some of that. We could use it. We could build an orphanage over here. I can get me a new shirt, whatever, right? And so Elisha says, no, go. What ends up happening? Gehazi follows him. And what does he say? He says, hey, my master changed his mind. <laughs> Tell you what, can you give me some clothes, a little bit of money? And, you know, the Syrian says, sure. And he, and he, and he, and he gives him that. What happens? Gehazi comes. He puts it in his little storage area. He comes back into Elisha's, you know, house, and he thinks that everything's going to be okay. And, you know, and you might be here today, and the bottom line is, you think you're going to be okay, even though you have been worshiping money and the things that money can buy. You can't hide it from God. And so what ends up happening is he comes back into the house and it says he went in and stood before his master in 2 Kings 5.25 and Elisha said to him, where did you go, Gehazi? And he said, your servant didn't go anywhere. And he said to him, did not my heart go with you when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? Is it time to receive money and to receive clothing and olive groves and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And he went out from his presence, leprous, as white as snow. I'm telling you that, guys, be careful. 
You're really thinking, well, God doesn't give people leprosy today. Oh, yes, he does. I've seen people called and commissioned in the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ choose money over God, and today they are lepers, if you know what I mean. See, these are the things, you know, being a deacon, being a Christian, that we have to guard our hearts against. Number one, I think there's the whole, just by God's grace and spirit, to have that self-control, you know, a man of character, self-mastery. And then secondly, when you're looking for deacons, then they also have to have the faith right. There have to be men of orthodoxy. Look at verse 9, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. And so they can't just behave right. They also have to believe right. They've got to line up with what the Bible says. You know, deacons must have orthodox convictions. NLT says they must be committed to the revealed truths of the Christian faith and live with a clear conscience. You know, unlike the, the false teachers, if you go back to chapter 1, uh, look at verse 18. It says, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some having rejected concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck. See, you got to have that, that, that faith, and it has to be a sincere faith and a real life. These guys, unfortunately, they went shipwrecked because they violated their conscience, and they didn't believe nor behave the right way. And as a matter of fact, it's a sign of the last days. If you go over to chapter 4, verse 2, it says, The Spirit says these things will happen in the last days, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. See, the deacons are to maintain a faith that is true and a conscience that is clear, holding on to God's revelation with sincere conviction. That's why when you sign up for ministry here, we ask you to you know, make a statement of faith. What do you believe? Because we know that this is important. Thirdly, in looking at our list here, look at verse 10. It says, let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. The NLT says, before they are appointed as deacons, they should be given other responsibilities in the church as a test of their character and ability. If they do well, they may serve as deacons. In addition to the selection procedure Paul has been outlining, there needs to be this period of probation in which the leadership may assess the character and beliefs and gifts of the candidates for the office of deacon. And so you know what the Bible talks about, how when you give a person a responsibility, if they're faithful in the little things, they're faithful in the little things, you know, and then more can be entrusted to them. And so this is how we as a church you know, need to pray. God, give these leaders wisdom and give these leaders wisdom to select other leaders that love you, that love your word, that love to serve you. Men that are called, men that are commissioned, not men that are flaky, but men that are truly appointed and anointed by God. You know, I mean, it just that's the way it works in the church. Leadership. That's how church rises or falls. 
Jesus said, if you got a guy who doesn't know where he's going, and he's a blind man, leading the blind man, what's going to happen to them? They're going to fall into a ditch. And this is why we have to do things God's way. You can't just put someone up there who hasn't been tested. And so, you know, don't, don't be upset if you're tested. Don't be upset if, you know, first we ask you before you teach the Bible study that you maybe empty a few, you know, trash cans or something. Because, you know, it has to be a heart of a servant. And then we hopefully pass the test and so move on to what God wants us to be. You know, in the book of Acts, if you go in there real quick, a lot of people say that these are the origins, the roots of deacons. And in verse 1, it says, Now in those days when the numbers of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And so one of the cool things about Judaism that spilled over into Christianity is that the welfare system was not the welfare system of the government that the poor people were taken care of by the people of God. And it's just a beautiful expression of God's love for the poor. Of course, we need wisdom in that because not everybody is, you know, trying, you know, and working. And so, you know, here you have a church and the widows are there and the the Hebrews are distributing, you know, the food. And then so everybody's complaining because what ends up happening was the Greek-speaking Jews, the Hellenists, they, were, they felt like they weren't being feeded, treated fairly and they were being neglected in the daily distribution. And so it was a church issue, right? And so it says in verse 2 that the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and they said, it's not a good thing, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. I like that, that we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so it says the saying, please the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. See, there's a formal, you know, ceremony, so to speak. And then the word of God, notice, spread. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many, even of the priests, were obedient to the faith. You see, when there's that structure and things are done God's way, it's so cool, man, the way things work out. You know, the, the guys were called to pray. And, and just imagine, and I don't know how you guys are, but some of you ladies are able to be stay-home moms. What do you do with that time? Imagine if just hours of that time was spent on your knees in prayer. Imagine the world would be different because you're praying, you know, or men waking up early and praying, or pastors really praying. They say the average pastor spends five minutes a day in prayer how pathetic is that? Sometimes it's their fault, but sometimes it's because there aren't deacons coming around to hold up their hands, right? I don't know. I do know this, that when the deacons did come, they were men that the church saw. Yeah, you know what? 
full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. Reputation is good. The church was able to see it, and they appointed them as deacons. And what ended up happening, the word of God grew. And the number of disciples, it says right here, it multiplied, you know? And that's really the, the, the word that we want to, to be able to share today. And I remember before I, I was on staff, you know, before I was involved in that capacity, I used to go in and help out. I used to volunteer and just whatever it was, you know, vacuuming or throwing away the trash, trying my best to learn, you know, what it means to be a servant. You know, and, and there are some of you here, and I know that you just have no time, and I understand that. It's hard nowadays, huh? I mean, a lot of you guys just cannot put anything else on your plate, not even a bean sprout. I mean, just nothing, right? So I'm not appealing to you. But for those of you who do have time, and it's God, not Manny, but it's God calling you to come in and to serve, there's always something to do. But when it comes to the formal aspect of being a deacon, tell you what, there are qualifications here that are beautiful, that are spiritual, and we see how beneficial it is. When people understand, not a whole lot of offices in the church. You've got pastors, elders, bishops, right? Those guys, overseers, and then you've got deacons. And when they come together, what a beautiful work the Lord does. But they need to be tested and they need to be proven, right? A faith that is not tested cannot be trusted. And so he says, when you're appointing deacons, back in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the first thing you look for is self-mastery. The second thing that you look for is orthodoxy. And the third thing you look for is to make sure that they've been proven or tested. And then the last thing is that they must have an irreproachable home life. Because look again at verse 11. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. And so he starts with the wives. And he's going to just talk about them dealing with their home life. Philip's translation says their wives should share their serious outlook and must be women of discretion and self-control, women who can be thoroughly trusted. You know, and when you look at this right here, it's interesting. In verse 11, likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers. The Greek word for slanderers, are you ready for this? Diabolos. Eesh. That's how ugly slander is. Like the devil, man. You know? And, and how awesome it is when you have a wife by your side that, that's right on. You know, you wives, and if I can just speak to you just for a second, do you realize what a difference you make in the life of your husband? Either to make him or to break him. Right? And of course I know that the context here is this is a man who knows how to lead. I understand that. A man who's not a shoving leader, but a loving leader. A man knows how to rule his house well. I understand that. And yes, the burden of responsibility does lay on the husband. But wives, do not neglect your responsibility as well. As we're reading these things, it's not just information. Okay, this is what you know. deacons are supposed to be in their wives. No, it's also for transformation. God, give me this heart. Make me this type of man. Make me this type of, of woman. 
you know, and what a difference she makes. I'm not sure about this, but I think of the life of Lot, and I think about how good he started off and with the influence he had with Abraham. But then I know he made some bad decisions. He went over to Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't know if he messed up his wife or she messed him up. Maybe it was a combination of both, right? But we know that in the end, when they were leaving Sodom and Gomorrah, she looked back. She was turned into a pillar of salt. Definitely she was not right. And maybe you're here today and your husband's not right. But God can use you, Philippians, I mean, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, that through your conduct and your inner beauty, you can win him to Christ. All I'm saying is that what a difference it makes. And we've seen over the years how some wives have just ruined things for their husbands. Oh, it's a husband's fault. It's a wife's fault. You know what? It's probably a little bit of both. All I know is that the wife has a heavy responsibility. I mean, I know this. Proverbs 31.23 talks about the Proverbs 31 woman, the virtuous woman, the beautiful woman. And it says that her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. You know how this woman made such a difference in her husband's life that look at where he ended up being used by God in a tremendous way. And so... In looking at deacons, I think it's important to know what this means. Now, there are some who believe in verse 11 that now he's speaking about deaconesses. You know, when you look at the Greek, the phrase their wives, it actually is literally just the women. And so some believe this is in reference to a deacon's wife or a deaconess also. You know, Romans 16.1, some say that Phoebe was a deaconess. And I would say this, that it's possible, but it's not probable. The very next verse right here says that he should be the husband of one wife. You know, and looking at ladies, and some lady might, oh, but wait a minute, I thought it was a deaconess. No, you're better, man. You know, we know how it is. Maybe you can't lead the church. Maybe you can't have that office in the church of being a pastor or a deacon, but you have so much more. Where would we be without you and the women's ministry and the godly ladies that are making a huge difference in this church? I just know this, that as we look to the church and we look to the leaders of the church, God says, I want to give this to guys. But I tell you what, you guys, you cannot do this without your lovely ladies, without your sisters. You know, Christian workers and volunteers sometimes make the mistake of ignoring their families in order to focus their energies on their work. Spiritual leadership, however, must begin at home. If a person is not willing to take care for or discipline or teach their children, then that person is not qualified to lead in the church or even to serve as a deacon. Don't allow your work or your ministry to detract you from your family responsibilities. Make things right at home, you guys. That's the qualifications for ministry. As we look at this right here, we see he has to have an irreproachable home life. And if they do well, verse 13 says, those who have served well as deacons attain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, verse 13, for those of you who know your Bibles, wouldn't you say that's Stephen? I would say so, huh? Oh, man, that's Stephen. Uh, look at good standing in whose God's sight, the first martyr Jesus stood up to receive him home, right? And then boldness in the faith. Oh, see, beautiful what God ends up doing, man. 
And one version says, those who do well as deacons will be rewarded with respect from God and others and will have increased confidence in their faith in Jesus Christ. You see, in looking at our study today, and we're just learning, you know, how to do church and how to, you know, conduct ourselves. We see, first of all, the qualifications for deacons. And then we see, secondly, the stimulation for the letter. Because look what Paul says in verse 14. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself. Notice in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in glory. Paul says, man, at the moment of writing, I hope to be with you soon, but and if there should be any delay, then what I have written will show you the sort of character men of God's household ought to have. And he begins, first of all, with conduct, and then secondly, with Christ. You know, what we read right here in verse 15, he says, I want you to know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, and this is what I want you to know about the church, that is the church of the living God. This is the church of the living God. And you're like, well, this doesn't look like the church of the living God. I know it doesn't look like the church of the living God, but it is. The living, the living, the living God is here. And when you read the Old Testament, it's really interesting. I see the contrast between the idols and the living God. I love the way Elijah came into the presence of King Ahab. I think it was 1 Kings chapter 17. And he says, as the Lord lives, before whom I stand, boom, not going to be any rain until I say so. And you know, when you have a relationship with the living God, I'm telling you, that's what makes all the difference in the world. You know, a real cognizant relationship uh, of his constant presence. This is the church of the living God. You know, when the members of the congregation are scattered during most of the week, it's difficult to remain aware of this reality. But when we come together as a church of the living God, every aspect of our common life is enriched by the knowledge of his presence in our midst. In our worship, we bow down before the living God. Through the reading and exposition of his word, we hear his voice, the voice of the living God. We meet him at his table when we partake of communion. And when we fellowship together, we love each other as he has loved us. The love of the living God. Indeed, believers coming in, when they see these things, they will declare truly the living God is among you. That's what this is, you guys. It's the church of the living God. He says it's the pillar and the ground of the truth. See, and this is not just a social club, and this is why we preach the word, and this is why we teach the word, and this is why we are so, you know, crazy about doing Bible studies all the time. You know, some people, they don't understand that. They think, well, shouldn't you do other things besides just teach the Bible? And, you know, and we do a little other things, you know, here and there, but primarily the epicenter, the foundation, the pillars 
is the preaching and teaching of the Word of God because that's what the church is. Paul says, man, if for some reason I can't make it there as fast as I want to get there, I want this to be loud and clear. I want you to understand what this church thing is all about, that that's the church of the living God. It's the pillar, it's the foundation of the truth. And what we do is we we give the the, the proclamation of the truth and there's a, a protection of the truth. That's to be propagated here in the church. The Greek word he uses right here, the hedreoma of a building, is its mainstay. And it refers either to its foundation or to a buttress which supports it. And in either case, what it is is it stabilizes the building. And so the church is responsible to hold the truth steady among the storms of heresy and unbelief. And we live in a world today that, you know, they're, 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 they're telling a lot of lies, even in the church. You know, the whole issue that we have with gay marriage nowadays, there's a few reasons that we need to talk about it. But, but one of the reasons is because some people who profess to be Christians think that it's okay. And that needs to be clearly articulated that it's not, that it's contrary to God's word. Christian, if you say you're a Christian and you believe in gay marriage, then you might not be a Christian. And that needs to be declared clearly. And here you'll find the truth. Now we know we're going to see as we go through our study today that they're probably never going to believe you until they become Christians, that they need Jesus. But it doesn't mean we stop talking about it. Right? Because we got to preach the law, because they got to know that they're sinners in need of a savior. Right? But where are they going to hear that? They're not going to hear it on CNN. They're not even going to hear it on Fox News, I'm sorry to say, and all you Fox fans out there. (laughs) They're going to hear it in the church. They're going to hear it through the church. But let me just say this too speak the truth in love. Okay, you don't go all over signs out there that say things that God says, I wouldn't say it that way. But you you know, everybody, a lot of you are different. Some of you are John the Baptist. I like that about you, you know. Others of you are just a little bit more uh, gentle in the way you bring things across. Praise God, be who God made you to be. But speak the truth. Speak it in love. You're going to hear that in the church. This is what this is all about. He talks about the foundation or the buttress He also talks about the pillars. Now, the interesting thing about the pillars is this, that everyone here in Ephesus would understand the pillars and they would immediately think of the Temple of Diana, the Temple of Artemis there in Ephesus, which was known back then as one of the ancient seven ancient wonders of the world. And there was 127 pillars there in the temple. And it brought the the structure up somewhere around 50, 60 feet high. And that's high, you guys. Telephone poles, 40 feet. Imagine how big that is. And so what a lot of people believe is that as you're sharing the truth and you're, first of all, protecting the truth, right? You're laying that foundation and the buttress supporting it, right? You also, man, you just lift it up high and far. And in one sense, that's kind of the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is what we do as a church. This Greek word, stylos, it refers to a pillar or column. And the purpose of pillars is not only to hold the roof firm, but to thrust it high so that it can be clearly seen even from a distance. And this right here is the double responsibility of the church. First is its foundation to hold firm so it doesn't collapse under the weight of false teaching. 
And secondly, as a pillar, it is to hold high so that it cannot be hidden from the world. See? One is the clarification of the gospel, and the other is the proclamation of the gospel. The church is dependent upon the truth for its existence. We wouldn't be here without the truth. But you got to know this, that the truth is also dependent upon the church for its persistence. See, and we have to guard this and go out into the world with this. This is the conduct of the church. And notice next the content of the church. I love verse 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in glory. Now, most people think this was a hymn. I should probably tell Steve, hey, bro, write a song like this, man. Uh, but and, it, and more than likely it was. And the thing that you see about it, it was a hymn all about him. Huh. It's all about Jesus. And this is all about Jesus. And I tell you what, it's beautiful when you look at the responsibility that the church has. You know, here we are talking about protecting the truth and just taking the truth out into the world. And then in one sense, what we find is that this, the, the epicenter and the content of that truth is Jesus, Right? They need to get saved. You know, I didn't believe that, you know, drugs was a sin until I got saved. When I got saved, I was able to see. And so it's okay to talk about things, but man, go to the cross. Go to the cross of Jesus Christ. When Paul went to Corinth, he said, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You know, we can go to the philosophers, you can go to the intellectuals, and you can go to Athens. Not a lot's going to happen that way. But when he went to Corinth, he went with fear and trembling, and he said, you know what? I don't have the capability to argue you into the kingdom. You need Jesus. And that's what he's saying. It's all about Jesus. And look at the chronology here. God was manifested in the flesh. You know, um, just beautiful the way that we see um, the Lord took on his human nature in Christmas Day or even before that, the moment of conception, right? He was justified in the Spirit. And this means he was shown to be righteous by the Spirit. No matter how we take this, it means that the Spirit is the person who proved Jesus to be who he claimed to be, right? Matthew 12, I think, is verse 28. One of those verses it says, man, by the Spirit of God, I'm doing this. When Jesus rose, it was by the Spirit of God who testified who he was. See, he was manifest in the flesh. He was justified by the Spirit. He was seen by angels. We know while he walked on earth and even as he rose again. He was preached among the Gentiles. That happened in the book of Acts. Believed on in the world. And then the last thing, more than likely this is a chronological order here. He was received up in glory. More than likely that's not in reference to his ascension. Because then that would be the only thing out of order. More than likely, you know what that is? It's the day that he is lifted up on high and crowned as the king of the universe. And I can't wait for that day. I look forward to that day. It's all about him, you guys. And as we go through this, and you know, we preach Jesus and we serve Jesus and his people, my prayer, man, is that he would do this work in us as a church. Father, we thank you so much for just loving us the way that you do, Lord. 
I pray, Lord, that you would bless your congregation here. And I know there are so many that love you and you're working in us, Lord. I pray also for those who are struggling, those who maybe are not walking, Father. I pray that today would be the day that things would be changed. And Father, if it grieves my heart to see people playing games and playing church, I would imagine it grieves your heart so much more. I know you love them, Lord. I know you love every single person here. But I know, Lord, that your love won't leave them that way. Your love wants to call them to a deeper commitment. And so I pray, Lord, that that work of the Holy Spirit would take place today in every heart as we aspire to be servants in every capacity, Lord, and as we aspire to be a church that would bring you glory and honor. Thank you for, Lord, commanding us, demanding us to do these things. I pray, Lord, that we would be obedient to you. Bless your people. Save the lost. Lord, I pray. And just in case there is anyone here, man, I don't know, but if you're here today and you're not a Christian, and you want to be one, man. You want to make sure that when you die, you go to heaven. You want to repent of your sins. Receive Christ as Lord and Savior. Just in case, man, I just want you to raise your hand and uh, and we're going to pray for you. You want to receive the Lord, man. You want your name written in the book of life. You don't want to go to hell. But you want to go to heaven. He loves you. He died for you. All you have to do is choose to follow him. So if you're here today and you want to receive the Lord and you want to you want to come back to the Lord, maybe you drifted away. Just want you to raise your hand and we're going to pray for you. Very important decision. If you're not sure, man, you don't want to leave today without this having missed this opportunity, man, to be sure. It's a decision in your heart. Anyone here? Just raise your hand. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you're working, Lord, and I I hope everyone here is saved. (laughs) Maybe. Maybe, Lord, you know. But if not, Lord, I pray you wouldn't give up on anyone here, Lord, that you would continue to work in their hearts and that they would receive you, maybe even on the way home today, tonight, they kneel beside their bed and they give their lives to you, Lord. We know that's the type of saving God that you are and you are able. And so encourage us today in your amazing love, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you were encouraged by this study. If you have any questions, please call us at Calvary Chapel El Monte at air code 626-454-3414. Remember that Jesus loves you.